Hello. So, so far in this Sex and Sexuality series, Phil has started by outlining for us God's beautiful plan for human sexuality. He's talked about the fact that we're created as male and female. We're equal, even though we're different, and there's this kind of complementary nature of male and female as we work together. And he's talked about sexuality in terms of sexual activity, that God's created and design sexual activity to be something that unites two people in a, a deep way. And therefore, he reserves it for relationships which are lifelong, which are committed, for marriages between one man and one woman. And it's probably worthwhile, right at this point, highlighting again what Phil said, that when we say all this, we're talking about what Jesus says to Jesus' followers. So if you're here and you're listening and you're not a Jesus follower today, there's no pressure on you at all to live this way. Jesus doesn't expect you to. We don't expect you to. But we hope also that as you listen in, you're seeing something of the beauty of what God says, the beauty of God's plan. Because Phil's helped us see this is a beautiful picture, a beautiful way that actually, if everyone lived this way, lived according to God's plan, things would be wonderful. So many of the, the evils and the problems in our world would be removed. If everyone lived out God's plan for human sexuality, things like rape and sex trafficking, divorce, sexism, homophobia, revenge porn, porn addiction, they'd all be done away with. All those evils would be removed from our society. This is a beautiful picture. It's good news. But what if it's not that simple? What if actually this isn't good news? Because there are lots of people, sadly even sometimes Christians, who are saying this isn't actually good news for everyone. What about single people? People who can't or haven't been able to or don't want to get married. Are we saying that they don't get to have sex? Are we saying we're denying them the chance for sex, denying the chance for loving relationships, denying them the chance to share life with someone? And what about people who are same-sex attracted, people who are gay? If we're saying God's created and designed sex for marriages between one man and one woman, what does that mean for people who are gay? Can this really be good news if we're saying it means they're denied sex and love and companionship? Can this really be good news? And many people actually say no. Many people say God's teaching on sexuality actually isn't good news for everyone, and they go a step further. They say, actually, it's causing mental health difficulties, and it can actually lead to suicides. One proponent of that view is a lady called Vicky Beeching. Vicky Beeching is well-known as a Christian a songwriter and worship leader. And back in 2014, she came out as gay in an article in the independent newspaper with a headline saying, Church teaching is the reason I lived in shame. And she believes that this beautiful plan actually is toxic, that it leads to health issues, that it leads ultimately sometimes to suicides. Just this year, she's published a book called uh, Undivided, and the dedication says this. This book is dedicated to the memory of Lizzie Lowe, a 14-year-old British girl who tragically took her own life in 2014 because she fears telling her Christian community that she was gay. And the opening chapter of Vicky's book tells her own story, how she was so wrestling with being gay and wanting to be a Christian that she actually came within inches of throwing herself in front of a train to end her own life. Is this really a beautiful picture? Can this really be good news? Can it really be right? Can it really be life-giving to everyone? Well, for me, that's been a personal question, not just an abstract question. 
I've been a follower of Jesus since I was a child, and I'm also same-sex attracted. So when I reached my early teen years, I found that my romantic and my sexual desires are for guys rather than for girls. But at that time, I believed what Phil's taught, that the Bible teaches this beautiful picture of sexuality for marriages, one man, one woman. And as I've continued to read the Bible, to study it, to wrestle with it, I see that is what it says. And so that's left me in this position of asking, is that really good news for me? As someone who's same-sex attracted, many people around me would say no. Christians and non-Christians would say, no, it can't be good news. But I believe the answer is yes. I believe it's good news even for me. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's difficult. But it is good news. Or actually, I believe the answer is yes, but... You see, I think actually the answer is yes, this is good news for me. This is good news for everyone, for anyone. But the church has got a long way to go to helping everyone to live out and experience this as good news. And that's why I want to focus in the time I've got today on thinking how do we as Christians, how do we as the church live in such a way that actually it does seem possible, it does seem plausible, it does seem like good news for everyone, whether opposite sex attracted or same sex attracted, young or old, married or single, how do we live in such a way this really is good news for everyone? And the answer, yes, but, actually means the very first thing we as Christians have to do is we have to listen and acknowledge the reasons that some people are saying, no, this isn't good news. We can't overlook the story of Lizzie Lowe who at the age of 14 takes her own life because she can't bear telling her church that she's gay. We can't overlook the story of Vicky Beeching, who came within inches of committing suicide, who has basically had to throw away her whole career and her whole life plan in order to try and reconcile the difficulties she was feeling. We can't overlook a study released just this year which has shown that lesbian and gay youth, who say that religion is important to them, are 38% more likely to have had suicidal thoughts than their non-religious counterparts. And actually, among the girls alone in that group, it's 52%. They're 52% more likely to have had recent suicidal thoughts if they identify as religious than their non-religious companions. The reality is the first step for the church when we think about this topic is to start by acknowledging we've not always got things right and to start by saying sorry. We've not loved, we've not accepted, we've not cared, often we've not understood or actually tried to understand and we've not lived out God's beautiful planet's entirety so that everyone gets to experience it as good news. So that's you today. If you're listening and you've been hurt by the church or you've been hurt by Christians around these whole kind of topics of sexuality, I want to start by saying that I am so sorry that that has been your experience. We, as God's people, are so sorry that that has been your experience. And I just want to affirm before anything else that God loves you. And we, as God's people, love you. And we want to get better. We want to live out the fullness of God's plan so that every person can live and experience God's plan for human sexuality as the good news it truly is and we truly should experience it to be. So let's look together at the yes and the but, starting with the yes. Is God's plan good news for same-sex attractive people if it means being single and it means being celibate? Ultimately, we're just asking, is singleness actually good? And I believe the answer is yes. And the reason I believe the answer is yes is because that's exactly what Jesus teaches. 
There's a story, Phil mentioned it in an earlier week, in uh, Matthew 19, one of the Gospels telling us about Jesus. And uh, the Pharisees come to test Jesus. The Pharisees don't like Jesus, don't like what he's saying, don't like how popular he is. They want to catch him out. They want to prove him wrong. And they pick divorce as the topic to kind of challenge him on. They say to Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Because that's where the big debate of the day on uh, divorce was. It was a debate about the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. What were the grounds on which you could get divorced? But when Jesus answers, he doesn't go to the law of Moses. He jumps right back over that. He goes back to creation. He goes back to the start of the story, to how things should be. He quotes Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, showing us that the very reason, or part of the very reason we're created as male and female is in order that there might be marriages between one man and one woman. And he explains that what happens then is God takes the two and he unites them as one flesh. And we as humans, he says, shouldn't try to separate, to pull apart what God has united as one. So much so, he says, that when we do that, when we pull that apart, and he gives the exception here of his sexual morality is being involved, but he says, if we pull it apart and then we reunite to someone else, actually, we commit adultery. And his disciples hear this and they think, oh man, Jesus has got a bit far again. He's, he's a bit over the top. He's going a bit harsh. We need to get him to kind of, you know, rein it in a little bit. And so they say to him, Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. They're trying to shock Jesus because in that context, no one wanted to be single. Singleness was a really bad thing. Look through the Old Testament. No one chooses voluntarily to remain single. No people in the Jewish context where Jesus was in his day chose to remain single because in that context, being married and having children were seen as being under the blessing of God. They were kind of markers. They were signs of that. And so they think when Jesus realizes the implications of what he's saying, obviously he'll tone it down. But he doesn't. Jesus basically says, yeah, exactly. Actually, in many ways, it's better not to marry. But he also says, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. He's saying, yes, actually, you know what? It's better not to marry. But he's saying that doesn't mean that no one should get married. There's a different path for different people. Only those who can receive it can do it. And then he talks about what singleness might look like. He talks about three groups of unmarried people using the figure of a eunuch, a guy who's unable to produce children. He says there are the eunuchs from birth, guys unable to procreate, as they're born, uh, guys who are made eunuchs by men, referring to the ancient practice of castration. And then he says, there are eunuchs who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And this is radical. It was radical then. It's radical now. He's saying there are people who will voluntarily choose to remain single. And the reason is God's kingdom. The reason is that they might live under God's life-giving rule and they might serve the true king of this kingdom. That was shocking, but actually maybe the really shocking bit is the very last thing Jesus says. He says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. He basically says, those who could, should. And that's exactly the opposite of what culture, actually exactly the opposite of what the church often says. Culture says, if you have to remain single, then do the church says, but if you can't find anyone to marry, you'll have to remain single. Jesus says, if you could, then you should. He's saying that singleness is good. And he can say that even though his society didn't believe it, even though the whole Old Testament story doesn't suggest it, because he knew that in his life, 
and his death and his resurrection, he was changing everything. No longer would keeping the law and then having kids and being married be marked as God's blessing. Now we are in him. We receive all of God's blessings by being in Jesus by faith. And that means singleness can be good. So is singleness good? Is it good for me as a same-sex attractive person? Is it good for anyone as an opposite-sex attractive person? Jesus tells us, yes, singleness is good. So is God's plan for sexuality good for people in my situation, for people who are unmarried? Well, yes, but we've got to not forget there's another part to the answer. Because then we've got to ask, well, why is it that this is a good thing? Jesus says it's good, and yet so often that's not our experience. That so often people, even people committed to following Jesus already, don't experience it as a good thing. Why is it felt by some to be toxic, to lead to mental health problems, to lead ultimately to suicides? Well, I think the answer to that question, why is this happening? It's because we are not doing church in such a way and we're not just kind of understanding Christian life in such a way that it's actually plausible to be single and to be celibate. It's a bit like trying to have a roof without having the walls. You might build a roof and the roof might be wonderful. It might be the best constructed roof. You've had the best builder involved, the best materials. But however good the roof is, if the walls aren't there to hold it up, it's pointless and it's not going to work. God's given us this beautiful plan for human sexuality, but he's also told us a load of other stuff. The roof's there, it's perfect, it's beautiful, crafted by God, but actually if we don't live out the other stuff which form the walls, we can't hold that roof up. It can't be experienced as the good news it is. And so I want to quickly take us through four problems, four walls which should help us to keep the beautiful plan of God up to be experienced as good news by all people. Each one is rooted in an objection that people often bring against this good news. And I want to show how these objections, actually, the Bible answers them. The Bible has a a better way, how the Bible means that being single and being celibate can be plausible, can be life-giving, truly can be good news. So the first one of those, the first wall we need to get in place is about identity. Yes, this is good news for everyone, but the church needs to root its identity in God. The kind of common objection lurking behind this is when we kind of think, well, if we don't allow people to enter into relationships, to have sex, if God's not allowing that, then we're not allowing them to be their true self, to express who they truly are. Actually, we make people deny who they are. And then it's inevitably going to be painful and difficult. It's the idea that kind of I'm gay and that's core to who I am. That's part of my very identity, fundamental to me, And therefore, I'll only be happy and content and peaceful and satisfied if I can embrace that and I can express that in how I live my life. And to deny that will inevitably be painful and constraining and difficult. And that's the view of our society, that our sexuality is our identity. We're gay or we're straight or we're bisexual or asexual or pansexual. It's markers of who we are. It's core to our being. We're saying that how we feel and who we're attracted to, how we feel internally is who we actually are and therefore it is the road to satisfaction and fulfillment. But for Christians, our sexuality isn't part of our identity. You see, Christian identity doesn't come from within. It's not about how we feel, what's going on inside of us. 
It also doesn't come actually from those around us. It's not based on what people say about us, how they evaluate us, how they view us. Christian identity comes from God. It comes from what he says about us. God says that we, every one of us as humans, is made in his image. We're unique in creation in that way, and we therefore get to be his representatives on earth. God says of his people that we were loved before the foundation of the world, and that now we can never, ever, ever be separated from his love. He says that we are his workmanship, crafted by his hands, created by him. And he says that we are his children, adopted as sons and daughters, eternally loved, eternally secure, eternally wanted, eternally invited to be in intimate relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, that is who you are. That is your identity. And that doesn't mean that some of us aren't same-sex attracted. I've no doubt that I am. But that is part of how I am. It's not part of who I am. It describes an aspect of my experience of life. It doesn't speak of my identity who I truly am, what is actually core to me. And that means it's not something I need to act on or to express in order to be satisfied and be fulfilled. That's why you might have noticed I tend to refer to myself as same-sex attracted rather than as gay. That's going to find a helpful distinction. Same-sex attracted describes about how I am, how I experience life. The word gay tends to be used to speak of something that's core to us, something of our identity. And I find it a useful reminder to me and a useful reminder to others to say that I'm same-sex attracted. It's part of how I am, but it's not who I am. It's not my identity. And identity from God is wonderful. It's secure. If you try to find your identity in how you feel internally or what people say around you, it'll always be insecure. You might change how you feel. People might not like you. People might say different things about you. Identity from God is stable and secure. No matter what happens, no matter how I feel, no matter what people say, I am a child of God. I'm eternally loved. I am eternally secure. And so the church needs to help same-sex attractive people like me find our identity in God. And yet the reality is many of us just aren't doing that in general. Many of us as Christians actually find our identity in other places, sometimes internally. It might be that for you, being straight is a really important core part of your identity. Often it's things outside. It's relationships. We're a husband or a mother or a boyfriend, or it's work. We're a chef or a doctor or a builder. Maybe it's just about activities that we do. We're a musician, a footballer, a computer game geek. We find our meaning and purpose in all these different things, but actually, if they were taken away, there'd be this great sense of loss of identity because we're not rooting our identity in God, which can never change and is safe and secure. All of us need to root our identity in God, as children of God, a wonderful identity that nothing can shake. And when we do that, then it will make sense when we call same-sex attracted people to do the same. It won't seem weird because actually we'll be showing it's possible. We'll be showing the wonderful fruit that comes from it. God's plan for sexuality does not deny our identity. The sad reality is lots of people who are following Jesus are denying their own identity because they're not rooting it in God. We've got to start there as the first wall we're going to put in place if this beautiful roof that God has made is going to stay up. The second rule, uh, wall that's going to help us with this roof is about love and sex. Because yes, this is good news, but the church needs to correct its views on love 
and on sex. The objection here is, well, it's just too cruel to deny people the chance to have a romantic and a sexual relationship. We kind of say they're legitimate needs, they're human needs. And if we're saying God's not allowing that to some people, then we're condemning people to a kind of loveless, intimacyless loneliness. And that's the view of the world around us. Look, you don't have to look very far, and you see this quest for romantic and sexual relationships. Think of all the dating shows that have appeared on TV in the last few years. Think of the plots of films and TV shows. Think of the lyrics of songs. They're all sending this message. Until you've got a partner, until you're having sex, you'll never feel loved. You'll never feel satisfied. Sadly, often in the church, we've done the same. We've extolled marriages so high, we've sent the message, whether intentionally or not, that actually until you're married and you're experiencing sex and love in that context, you're never really going to feel loved. You're never really going to feel satisfied. But the Bible tells us that view is based on a lie. Or maybe more accurately, it's based on a half-lie. Because there is some truth lurking in there. The wonderful truth is that we are created with a legitimate God-given need for human love. You see that right at the beginning of the Bible story. Genesis 2 is a perfect world, perfect creation, perfect garden. Adam is the first humans put there. And then God sees one thing isn't quite perfect. The thing that's not perfect is he's alone. So God creates another human. He starts human community right there and then. Because even though Adam had a perfect relationship with God, he still needed human community because God had created him with that need. That need is hardwired into us. We can't flourish without human love. But the mistake our culture often makes, the, st- the mistake the church often makes, is by equating that need for love and equating love in general with sex and with romantic love. We see sex and romantic love as the only way we're actually going to feel love, the only way we'll experience love. In our culture, sex is the only form of real uh, uh, intimacy. The only way we think we can experience intimacy with someone is through sexual activity. And if we believe all this, then denying anyone romantic relationships and sexual relationships is going to leave them in a painful, difficult position. Other evidence of this in society is things like bromances. You know, bromance films, the whole premise of those is that these two guys can't really be that good friends and there not be some sexual element going on. There's always this awkwardness. That's because we believe that love equals sex. You actually even see it in readings of history, even in readings of the Bible, both by Christians and non-Christians. Take this verse from the Old Testament, where um, King David, uh, his best friend Jonathan, has died. And he says this, He says, I'm distressed for you, brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And many people, perhaps many of us, hear that and we really struggle not to see something sexual, not to see something homoerotic in that statement. That's because we're believing the lie that love equals sex. You can't have true love if there's not sex involved. But sex is not the only way we feel and we express love. It's not the only way we can feel and experience intimacy. It's striking when Jesus teaches on love, he doesn't use marriage, he doesn't use sex, he uses friendship. When he thinks, how can I best explain love to them? He thinks, friendship. He says, right at the end of his life in John's Gospel, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He says, the greatest love can exist with no hint of romantic stuff, no hint of sexual activity being involved. 
And the great news here is if sex and romantic relationships are not necessary for love, then we can experience all the love that God has created us to rightly need without needing sex, without needing romantic relationships. And that means it's not cruel if God's saying that for some people, those, uh, those avenues aren't open. And I know for me in my own life, this has been just such an important realization. There was a real breakthrough moment when I realized the fundamental issue is love, not sex. As long as it was about sex, it was just there was no way forward. I felt I wanted to have sex with men. God was saying I couldn't, and there was no way forward. When I realized actually what's going on is I want to be loved. I want to love and I want to be loved. And when I realized actually God's giving ways for that to be possible, even though I won't have a romantic relationship, even though I won't be having sex, suddenly what seemed like a dead end opened up. Suddenly there was a way forward. And when we do this, all we're doing actually is exactly what Jesus has commanded us to do. Right near the end of John's Gospel again, the night before Jesus is going to be crucified, he gives a new command to his disciples. He kind of marks it as really important. He says this is a new commandment. And he says to them, they're to love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. That is a costly love. He's just washed their feet, which is an unpleasant task. He's about to die for them. That's how he's going to love them. He's saying, now you love one another as I have loved you. There's nothing romantic about that. There's nothing sexual about that. But there's real expression of love. To do this is to live out what Jesus says to us. And so we all need to believe this. We all need to live it out. We need to be the kind of communities as churches where everybody, whether single or married, opposite sex attracted, same sex attracted, gets to be loved and gets to express love in non-sexual and non-romantic ways. It gives real hope. It shows this really is possible to be single and to be celibate. So that's wall number two, to keep the roof of God's beautiful plan in place. Wall number three is about family. Yes, this plan is good news for everyone, but the church needs to become family for all, family for everyone. The objection here, people say, well, God's plan is cruel because you're denying some people the chance to have a family, the chance to have kids, the chance to have people to live with and share life with. Ultimately, you're forcing people into loneliness. But it shouldn't be the case that celibate singleness equals not having family, equals being lonely for people who are in the church community. Because the Bible tells us that church is family. That's, again, core to identity. If we've been adopted by God as his sons and his daughters, then that means together we are siblings. Together we are family. It's who we are. It's already true of us. But to be family is different from living as family. We need to both be family, it's who we are, but then we need to live it out. And because the reality is that everybody who's born is born with biological family. That's just how things work. The sad fact, though, is not everybody gets to experience life with their biological family. Living as family is another different thing from being family. We already are family as a church, but we then need to live it out, to live as family, so everybody gets to experience that. One of the things in our culture which stops us from doing that is we have this really closed uh, kind of small view of family. We think of nuclear families, uh, mum and dad and some kids, as this kind of closed, solid unit. And we think it odd when other people get involved. We think it odd when nuclear families live together in the same house. But actually, God wants us to have families. He loves family, but then to be open, inviting other people to join him. Jesus himself expands our view of family. This is a brilliant story in Mark 3 and some of the other Gospels. 
Jesus' family kind of see what's going on as he's getting more popular, more known, and they're kind of worried. They basically think he's going crazy, and they want to talk to him. But there's such a crowd around Jesus in this house, and such a crowd around the house, they can't even get to him. And so they send a message to the crowd, and the message comes to Jesus. And we read in the story, and we think we know Jesus. Obviously, he's the good guy. Obviously, he's going to go, oh, sure, I'll go out, I'll talk to them, I'll kind of see what's going on, see what they want. But he doesn't. He sits there and he says, well, who are my mother and my brothers? And then we're told he looks around and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus expands our understanding of what family is. He says, no, look up, you've got a bigger family. You've got more family allegiances and responsibilities now. And he's not saying we should get rid of families. We know he didn't mean that because at the end of his life, when he's hanging on the cross, his biological mother is there and he entrusts her into the care of one of his closest friends. But he's saying we are family and we need to view ourselves that way and live that way so we are a place where everybody gets to experience family and be family together. As you might think, that's great, but how do we actually do that? What does that actually look like? There's loads we could say there, but let me give you one quick thing every single one of us can do in our lives to make church more like family for all people. It's a simple thing of sharing life together. It just means do what you usually do, but do it with other people alongside you. Invite them to come and join you in it, because that is what families do. Most of family life isn't these kind of great special occasions. It's we're doing normal life, but we're doing it alongside each other. And that's great because it means you don't have to go all out. You don't have to cook five courses and, you know, polish the best silver, put out the special crockery, get a neatly, newly ironed uh, tablecloth, get out the candelabra. You don't have to do any of that. You just, when you're having pizza and watching TV on a Saturday night, you invite some people to come and join you. When you're going on a day trip to Ikea to get some new furniture, you invite some other people to come with you. For parents, it means allowing other people to be involved in your kids' lives. That's great for your kids because they're getting the input of other adults. It's great for you because you just get those few moments of slight respite. And it's great for others because they get to have family and enjoy being with children and investing into their lives. And it's been my own experience that actually being celibate and being single doesn't mean I don't have family. If anything, actually it means I often have more family than my married friends who've got kids. I have keys to multiple houses. Fridges I can raise, sofas I can sleep on, kids I get to read bedtime stories to and feed and build Lego models with. I get to have a wonderful experience of family with lots of people in a way that actually is really hard for some of my married friends to do. It doesn't leave me without family. It gives me the opportunity of more family. But that takes all of us to play a part to be the kind of churches where everyone gets to experience family, where it's natural to open up our existing family units and to do life together so that everybody gets to experience real family life in the context of church as a family. That's the third wall. And then the final wall we need to get in place if this truly is going to be experienced by everyone as good news, to keep that roof up, is about discipleship. Yes, this is good news, but we all need to count the cost of following Jesus. We all need to live as radical disciples of Jesus. The objection here that people bring against God's teaching is just kind of the idea that this isn't fair. It isn't fair that opposite sex attracted people get to marry and have kids and have sex, but same sex attracted people, God's saying that's not an available option. Sometimes the focus is put on God. Well, if God's a God of love, how would he deny, how can he deny relationships of love to people? 
And we're already seeing some of the misunderstandings that underlie that view, that actually God's not denying family or love to any of us. But actually, ultimately, I think this often comes down just to a misunderstanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Lurking behind that kind of objection is, well, following Jesus should be a really good, easy, kind of just pain-free life. And the reality is, if you're a Christian, you want to follow Jesus and you're same-sex attracted, that's not what life is like. However much you know your identity and you experience love and family in the context of church, it can still be really painful, really difficult. There's this daily choice not to act on what feel like really deep-seated desires within you. And it can be lonely and tough and painful. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. Because the reality is that Christian life will always be difficult. In fact, Jesus told us exactly that. This is really important point in the middle of several of the Gospels. It's the point where the disciples first really realize who Jesus is. This guy, he's the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one we've been waiting for. And once they know who he is, Jesus starts to explain what he's going to do. He starts to explain he'll go to Jerusalem. He'll be killed, but he'll rise from the dead. They kind of can't get their heads around it. It's what no one expected. But once he's explained that, he can then explain what following him looks like. He's explained that his path, contrary to all expectation, will be a path of suffering. And so then he says to follow him. He's actually to follow him on that path of suffering. He says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Christian life is meant to be following Jesus on the road of suffering. It includes denying ourselves, our wants, our desires, our plans. It's taking up a cross. That's not a comfortable thing. You're carrying this burden upon you. And it's actually choosing to lose your own life. But in losing it, you suddenly discover the best life. You discover real life in it. The reality is, let me tell you, life as a single, celibate, same-sex attracted Christian is hard. It can be really painful. It's a daily dying. But that's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what Christian life is about. And whatever pain, whatever difficulties, whatever trials, it is always worth it. Because as we lose our lives, we actually find true life, real life, the life we're made for, life with God now and then for eternity in perfection with him. But the reality is, the problem is, that's often not how many of us as Jesus followers look at what it means to follow Jesus. We don't see following Jesus as taking up our crosses, denying ourselves, dying to ourselves. We expect it to be pain-free. We expect it to be easy. And then when we call other people to live in a way which seems pretty difficult, it just doesn't make sense. It's not plausible. No one kind of thinks it can really work out. That's why each one of us needs to do this if we're saying we're following Jesus. Needs to deny ourselves, take up our cross, lay down our lives in order to try to find true life. We need to live as radical disciples. In this whole area of sexuality, but actually it's in every area of our life too. Because if we all did that as Christians, then it wouldn't seem unfair. It wouldn't seem surprising when that's the experience of people who are same-sex attracted or even just people who are single and celibate. So let me just kind of put to you Jesus' challenge, Jesus' words of where do you need to deny yourself in your own life? Where do you need to take up your cross to lose your life, to find your life? How do you need to become a, a more radical disciple of Jesus? When we do that, we've got in place the, the fourth wall, which is going to help us to keep up that roof, God's beautiful plan for sexuality. So is 
God's plan for sexuality really good news for everybody, for single people, for same-sex attractive people? I believe the answer is yes, or yes, but yes, it is good news for every single person. It's how God has created us to live and to flourish together. It's good news for those who are married, good news for those who are single, good news for those who are opposite-sex attracted, same-sex attracted, but the church needs to change. The church needs to listen to the, kind of the whole message that God has given us and live out certain things to make it plausible. We've got to get into place those four walls to keep the roof up, rooting our identity in God, having and expressing genuine love for each other, being real family for all, and being radical disciples of Jesus. Let me encourage you, let's be the kind of church, the kind of Christians who do that, who help everybody to experience what God has planned as good news, who make it plausible to be celibate and single and thrive in life with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your beautiful plan for sexuality. And the wonderful truth that it is good news for every single person. But we do also recognize where we have failed, where we have not made it feel like good news. We've not made it plausible and possible to be single and celibate. And God, we say, please, would you help us to do better? Please help us to put these walls into place, root our identity in you, know real love, express genuine love, to be family for all, and to be radical disciples of you. And please, Lord God, let those who are single, let those who are same-sex attracted find true home and true life in following you alongside us as the church, as your family. Help us to do this, we ask, Lord God. Amen.